0: For over 20 years, Ryan LeFever has been behind
1: the microphone for the Kansas City Royals. He came in taking the job of legendary broadcaster Fred White. And at that time, a lot of people didn't know if Ryan LeFever was going to be right for this position. But as fate would have it, as you'll find out over the next hour or so, he was exactly the right guy for the Royals at exactly the right time. Can you believe it's been two decades you've been in Kansas City? Does Does that surprise you when you hear that out loud, that two decades you've been broadcasting Royals baseball?
2: Well, good to see you too, Bob. Yeah. I mean, let's just yeah. jump right into it. We do it, jump huh? right into it. I
1: record like a little intro, you'll hear <laughs> okay. it, and we'll get right. right into it. We're not wasting people's time today, right? I,
2: I get the question occasionally, how long have you been doing this, or how long have you been in Kansas City? And I hesitate when I say, this will be my 21st year, because it doesn't just roll off the tongue. And I think because I was 28 years old, and coming from another market, mm-hmm and sitting in Fred White's chair and everything that surrounded that, I think I'll always feel like the new guy in town. I Still? Well, I think to some degree. And when I'm on radio, I'm working with a guy who has 30 years on me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'm ever going to – well, that's not true. Eventually, I guess I will. But it's going to take me a while to wrap my arms around the number of people that I've broadcast to. I mean, I have kids now. I say kids. In their 30s, let's say, I've been listening to you since I was, you know, well, 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So that that hits home. But yeah, when you start saying two decades, yikes.
1: Well, in, in baseball terms, I don't know if it's 20 years or 21 seasons. You know how we celebrate 50 years and 50 seasons in baseball. It, mm-hmm. It's all kind of different. So I just go, two decades, you've been doing it. You never thought you'd be here that long, though, did you?
2: If I were honest, no. Yeah. I think when I took the job, I was prepared to be here for a long time. But truth be told, my motives were not pure. I mean, I interviewed with the Royals for leverage in Minnesota. And my first real big break with the Minnesota Twins was when Herb Carneal, the Twins' Denny Matthews, the late Herb Carneal, when he started pulling back on his road schedule, I was the one who filled in. I was 25 years old. Now, I'd gone to the University of Minnesota. I was part of the television team the year before, so I wasn't a a complete stranger. I mean, fans were familiar with me. But on radio, they wanted to hear Herb, I mean, because that's who they'd listened to their entire lives. So now here's this kid doing the games, and it was hard. I mean, there were people that didn't care that I went to the University of Minnesota. So when I came here, I recognized what I was going up against with Fred White having been let go. And so in my heart of hearts, I was going to be here for two or three years, and then return triumphantly to Minnesota. And it never worked out that way.
1: So why didn't you go back to Minnesota? What made you decide, you know what, this is a pretty good place, this is where I want to be?
2: Well, a few reasons. I think, number one, I won't tell you when, but I was offered a job to go back to Minnesota. When? Um... Let's say somewhere in between two thousand and one and two thousand five, okay, how about that? All right, that's fair, and I really didn't feel like I was ready. It was a big job, and I think at that point in my career i i I had lost or given up in a good way aspirations of being a network announcer or a big shot or whatever, and I started to realize that the best thing for my personality was I just wanted to be a local announcer, and so Um as I evaluated that and the responsibilities that come with being a local announcer and do the fans even want to listen to you, do they accept you? And I started to feel a level of acceptance in Kansas City. And I knew if I took this job in Minnesota that it would be like starting all over again and there was no guarantee that they would embrace me. During this time, the Twins went from being a bad team to basically winning the division every year. So with that comes a whole new fan base that didn't even remember that I was there in the first place. So I started to realize that it's not easy just to so-called go home again, even though Minnesota is not, you know, my birth home. And so I, I, I realized it's not the time for me to do this. So that was, that was the main reason, I think. Um, and then, I almost went back after the 2011 season. My mentor, John Gordon, who was the lead radio voice at that point, retired. And I got into pretty uh, intense talks with the Twins. I was in a contract situation here with the Royals. And I looked at it from a Ryan LaFever perspective and only a Ryan LaFever perspective. Very selfish, very self-centered. And it wasn't going the way I wanted it to go. And so for all the wrong reasons, I entertained going back to Minnesota. I was 40 years old. I was married with one child, another one on the way. And I thought to myself, if I'm ever going to move, if I'm ever going to make a move, now would be the time because of my age. And I didn't have kids in school yet. I was going back to, sounds a little um, uh, hypocritical, but um, if I was going to move, at least some people would Remember that I was once in Minnesota. And as it turned out, uh, they decided to go with somebody else. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because what was a, a really good relationship between me and the Royals became a great relationship between me and the Royals. My marriage improved because my wife and I really had to walk through all that together. And would she be willing to go to Minnesota? Would she be willing to go somewhere where I knew a lot of people and she didn't know anybody? And, um, so a lot of good things happen. number one being that I just, it, it kind of cut the cord with Minnesota. It was like, yeah. you know, now I can go back and just be friends with everybody and appreciate my time there and not have to constantly have a conversation with somebody about, Hey, you ever going to come back? That was over because of that. And then you know, a lot of friendships here. Um, I think I allowed those to become deeper, closer friendships because I realized this is where I'm going to be. This is it. If if I have anything to do with it, I will never leave Kansas City. And um and then of course from a professional standpoint, the two trips to the World Series, obviously, I mean, was was great to be a part of that. So it I mean, I if I ever were to write a book about my career, and I I hope I never do, but when I do talk about my career, I mean that that two thousand eleven off season leading into two thousand twelve was was a time of great personal and professional growth.
1: How do you deal with a big life decision? Because I know everybody goes through those. Obviously, I went through a couple of big life decisions. You've obviously gone through a couple of big life decisions. Mm -hmm. I think everybody that's listening has gone through a big life decision like that. How do you process all of that? How do you get your mind wrapped around what you want to do and figure out what exactly is the right decision?
2: Well, I think there's an intellectual process to it. I mean, I never thought I would go from the beaches of Southern California to the University of Minnesota. Okay, So I go on this recruiting visit, which is a long story I won't bore you with, but I had no intention of going other than my dad knew the coach, and I think as a favor to my dad, they offered me a trip. As a favor to my father, I went on the trip. So neither one of us were really that serious about each other. And then we started to realize that maybe this will work out. And so as an immature 18-year-old Southern California knucklehead, I came up with all these different uh, criteria about what I thought at that time was important with a college experience. And I ranked it from one to three. One meaning it was low, two was okay, three was very good. And so at the end, after visiting all the schools, I just added them up. And the University of Minnesota had the highest score. Same thing happened when I left Minnesota to come to the Royals. I put all the pros and cons for staying in Minnesota or coming to Kansas City, and Kansas City had a higher number. So that was the intellectual part. Then there's the relational part, just talking with friends whom I trust mm-hmm. and would give me good advice. And if I'm going to invest in these people and hope that they would trust me if they had a life decision, I must do the same with them. And then for me, there's the spiritual component of it. And just uh, you know, my, my faith is very important to me And just giving that decision to God and knowing in some way it will be revealed to me um, what I'm supposed to do. And am I willing to listen to that? And am I willing to, like, like I did when I almost went back to Minnesota after 2011, if I set my ego aside and I rely more on the spiritual, relational, and intellectual part of it, I think the answer is right in front of me. But, but that's hard in our business, sure. as you know, to put that ego aside and say, okay, what's this? You know, when I started really examining about going back to Minnesota, like, what is this really about? And it was for mostly the wrong reasons.
1: Yeah, mostly you know you you were mad at something that you you felt like going away would cure maybe instead of just focusing right. on what what is here and making that better maybe and you just thought maybe I will feel a lot more in Minnesota or something like
2: that. Well, and you and I both know. I mean, it worked out for you. Yep. But you and I know there are a lot of people that when they go back, it's not what they thought it was going to be. Sure. I mean, we change, uh, management changes, audience changes, mm-hmm. circumstance changes. So there's this, as I said. You know, there's this this dream of returning. Oh, Ryan's back! You know, this is, and it doesn't usually work out that way. Right. And I've seen enough of enough examples where it didn't quite work out, and um, and so I I I was aware of that. There's so much to talk
1: about with you about so many different things. Obviously, just not not even baseball related, but I I do want to start with baseball related Mm -hmm. because I I think your story is very similar to something we're all experiencing here in Kansas City. And that's Patrick Mahomes being Mm. raised around baseball and being raised by a a baseball dad and being raised in that baseball clubhouse and understanding how to basically be a professional athlete by being around all that. What did growing up in Major League Baseball with your dad as a manager and around a clubhouse teach you as a young kid that you're using in life today?
2: Well, I don't know why. I mean, I'm sure there was a hundred lessons, but the one that I always get back to was when I would follow my dad when he was in the major leagues. And this was with the Giants and when he was with the A's and when he was with the Mariners. By the time he had become manager of the Cubs, I was in college, and I didn't really didn't spend a whole lot of time with him. But I would bat boy. And so I think about it. I would be on the field in front of thirty, forty, fifty thousand 50,000 fans. And I can't help but think that even being a bat boy, that that doesn't have some effect later in life when – um Confronted with a situation where there's a large group of people or there's a lot of pressure or, you know, the, the game is on the line or life is on the line that, and we use this in sports a lot, able to slow the game down, which is really a misnomer. You don't really slow the game down. You slow yourself down while the game is speeding up. And I, and I do believe that as a college baseball player, I, I mean, I was, a, I was, I was gifted athletically, but I think if, if, if I could point to one thing more than anything else was that when we would go play in the NCAA tournament and we would go from playing in front of 2,000 people to playing in front of 7,000 people, I wasn't overwhelmed by that. I was nervous like everyone else was, but I was able, when I got in the batter's box, I was able to get back to, okay, here's the pitcher. Here's what he throws. These are my, I'm going to stay with my strengths where I would see some other kids would, that were really good players would become overwhelmed by that. Mm-hmm. And I think by extension, it helped me in my broadcasting career, too, that when I went on the air, there were nerves and I was insecure. And, but at the same time, I may have been more prepared for that because I used to run out to home plate and pick up the bat in front of forty or 50,000 fans. Or if I was lucky, when I was bat-boying in a National League game, and the pitcher would hit a double and I get to run from the dugout out to second base and give him his jacket. Oh, the nice satin jacket. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Cause when my dad was with the Giants, you know, Candlestick Park, I yeah. mean, it's like, you know, Kansas City in February is like San Francisco in July, you know, so the guys used to wear their coats and yeah. you get to run out in the middle of the field or even a Dodger stadium or something, you know, in front of all these fans during the Giants Dodgers rivalry. I think that kind of stuff rubbed off, rubbed off on me. And I'll bet Patrick Mahomes would say the same thing. It's really, it's really hard to, to explain, but for him to be that good that soon, if his father was not, um, Pat Mahomes, whom I broadcasted with, make me feel old back in 95 with the Minnesota Twins. His first year was my first year with the Minnesota Twins, I think. I'm sure that just being around the ballpark, and shagging fly balls with his dad and and being around Derek Jeter and stuff like that that had a lot to do with what he did on the football field this year no,
1: I agree I think baseball is the biggest reason or one of I should say the biggest reasons why at 23 years old he was able to play like he was a 33 year old and like like mm-hmm. like a, not like a young kid in the game and I think a lot goes for you as well at 25 in a major league broadcast booth. And I'm not trying to say you and Patrick Mahomes are at the same level because none of us really are. Let's, let's call it what it is. But you experienced the highest level at a very young age in your profession and he experienced the highest level at a very young age at his profession. And you both have that baseball father, that baseball background that I think is extremely important in teaching you just a lot about life and, the, uh, and a lot about how to, hard, how to have hard work to get to where you need to be. Because if you're Mahomes and you're seeing A-Rods taking extra batting practice, that has to send a message that, oh, my God, even the best guy out here is putting in extra hours to try to get better at his craft.
2: Yeah, here's a, here's a story you'll like along those lines. Rusty Kuntz and I go way back. Mm-hmm. When my dad became the manager of the Seattle Mariners in 1989, he asked, who's the best young coach out there? was ready to make the jump to the major leagues because he had a young team. It was Ken Griffey Jr.'s first year. It was Omar Vizquel's first year. They needed a a young coach. And when you have a young team, you need positive coaches with energy because chances are you're not going to have a very good season. So um, Ken Griffey Jr., ton of natural ability, and yet he needed to learn how to work like a major leaguer. A lot of what he did naturally was going to work, but there was another level where he needed to go. So hours and hours before the game, Rusty would take Ken Griffey Jr. out to hit fly balls. Well, they didn't want to run him into the ground before the game, so they needed somebody else to go out there. So you hit Griffey a fly ball, he catches it, catches his breath, they hit someone else a fly ball, then you go back to Griffey, then the other guy. I was the other guy. So here I am, just finished my senior year of high school, I'm on my way to the University of Minnesota, and I'm I'm working out with... Ken Griffey Jr. and this goes back to your previous question just you know it was none of my doing my dad happened to be the manager I mean it was just lucky to be there it's not like I earned the right to be with Rusty and Ken Griffey Jr. but I was with Ken Griffey Jr. and Rusty Koontz was was coaching me but I did see the extra work and I saw that even Ken Griffey Jr. needed to work on things even Ken Griffey Jr. needed to find new ways to get better every day so to your point I think that's that's probably something that Patrick Mahomes would point to and and I hadn't really thought about it until you were just talking about it. That that I when you when I felt this way when I was an intern in radio and TV, maybe the same for you. To show up and watch them anchor the news or do a talk show or call play by play is one thing, but to see when that process starts mm-hmm. and how much work goes into right before the red light comes on is a completely different experience.
1: And and I think, you know, and and you could lie and say, oh, yes, I remember this or not if you want, but there's this great picture of Pat Mahomes holding Patrick Mahomes, you know, in his twins uniform when maybe he was one, maybe Mm -hmm. maybe he wasn't even one year old yet. I don't even know, but he's a little kid and he's holding him in his uniform. Do you have any recollection of him being up there at all or seeing him or any of that? No,
2: I don't. And and somebody on Twitter had posted, and I'm sure I would have known at the time, but 1995, the year he was born, was my first year... With the Twins, and apparently we were here in Kansas City because there was this article that said Twins pitcher Patrick Mahomes is away from the team. His girlfriend uh, delivered a baby boy, didn't even have his name in it. And he's expected to rejoin the team in Kansas City later today. It's on Twitter. And I thought, well, then it must be Ronnie then. (laughs) Well, I mean, I must have, I mean, I must have known then, but I don't, it doesn't stand out. It's not like, it's not like, Oh, I remember when he used to run around. Right. I mean, I remember when Francisco Pena was here. Sure. When Tony was the manager. I mean, you remember that. Yeah. Um, but, but little Patrick Mahomes, that's not true. When I do remember him and I remember thinking he's going to be a really good, NFL quarterback, right? You you
1: knew that right away. But (laughs) but, you know, I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason. You know, I I don't know why, but that's always been something I I really do. I believe like things happen for a reason. And to, to understand that he was going to rejoin his ball club in Kansas City when his son was born, yeah. how ironic is yeah. that? I mean, isn't that kind of like, I, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about that. That's kind of creepy.
2: Yeah, and then, and then now you're closer to this than I am. I mean, I don't follow it as closely as you do. But, I mean, think about how um, polarizing that decision was for the Chiefs to draft him. Now, I know a lot of Chiefs fans were for it because there was that feeling that the Chiefs are never going to go out and draft a quarterback that high. But, I mean, it it sounds like it resulted in a regime change because the coach and the general manager weren't on the same page, Mm -hmm. and it seems like half NFL teams thought that he was going to be something, half thought that you know he was just too much of a gunslinger to be an NFL quarterback, and yet there was a little bit of fate mixed in there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of fate, fate had it for you when you got here to Kansas City, I think, because... You took over for Fred White, as you mentioned, and, and we'll get to the fate thing in a minute, but you embraced Fred White when mm. when you got here. Usually when somebody comes into in a position like you, the guy that they're taking over for wants nothing to do with that guy. You guys formed a bond right away that kind of helped you more than you would ever
2: know, right? Well, I w- when I got the Twins job, I was so young. I was 24 years old, and I guess I was good enough for them to put me on the air, but I think deep down I knew I had a lot to learn, and this wasn't doing college and minor league baseball anymore this was the big leagues right and so at that time my role was the my first year was television only and i mostly hosted the television pregame show and then i would do i'd fill in in the booth periodically so when i wasn't doing anything in the booth during the game i would i would poke my head into all four broadcast booths i could listen to home tv visiting tv home radio visiting radio and in the 95 season, if it wasn't the first series of the year, one of the first series of the year, the Royals were at the Metrodome. And so I stuck my head in the booth just to listen to the announcers. Don Free was the engineer. Denny Matthews and Fred White were working together. I really didn't know anything about them. I'd open up the media guide and I would read about them. And and um the first announcer to turn his head and notice me in the doorway and say, hey, come on in, was Fred White. And the first... Uh, television broadcaster to congratulate me on getting the job and and embrace me was Paul Splitorf, guys I ended up working with. So I never forgot that. And from that point on, I think as I was wondering, do I belong here? To the, I mean, 24 years old sounds young now, but back then, I mean, that was really young. Mm-hmm. So I wondered, are these guys going to embrace me? I could tell some guys who'd been around for a while, you know, who's this kid? And he's got a, you know, it's because his dad's here. He got this job. Is he any good? And I felt that. But Fred was one of the first guys that whenever we played the Royals, I felt like I could go up and talk to him. And so I had an agent at the time. And she called me and said, uh, hey, the, the Royals have made a change on radio. Would you be interested? And I said, no, not at all. Why would I want to go to another market and replace a legend? I mean, I'm struggling here just to fill in for Herb Carneal. So we didn't pursue it. Well, then I had a contract situation in, in in Minnesota, and as fate would have it, the Royals called me directly, not knowing that I wasn't interested, and said, Would you be interested? And I said, Sure, I'd be interested. Yeah. And when I took the job, I felt like I owed it to Fred to call him. And um the station and the Royals were uneasy about that, and... I said, I I need to talk with him. And I didn't know what I was going to say, but I just felt like I owed it to him to say, hey, I took this job, and I know how important you are to the the Royals and to the history of the Royals. And I hope that if we see each other, that um, you know that I respect what you've done, and I'm not going to come in and act like I'm any better than you. And he was very nice. Well, Metro Sports, old Metro Sports, hired Fred. So my first spring training, I was there and Fred was there. And he was really gracious that first spring training to just make it clear, look, there are no hard feelings. My first two years were very rough. You know, Back then, we only televised half the games, if not fewer. So if you're a Royals fan and you wanted to be uh, listening to the Royals live, half the time you listened to radio because we weren't on television. And so the first two years, it was an adjustment for the fans and I understood and I didn't blame the fans. It was an adjustment for me. My third year is when Denny stopped. started trimming some of the games from his schedule. And I don't know whose decision it was, but it was a turnaround for me in my career. Somebody decided that Fred should do the games that Denny misses. Suddenly, people are listening to Royals games, and Fred White and Ryan Lefevre are on the air together, getting along, laughing, telling jokes, um, deferring to one another when a, when a play would happen and strategy and breaking down plays. And I still look at that. That was the first big step for me with Royals fans is when they heard the two of us on the air together.
1: How much did Fred White help you when you were battling depression?
2: Well, a lot. And in my book, I write about one of the lowest points for me is we were at Yankee Stadium. And, I mean, I was really struggling. I mean, I was, I was about as low as I ever got. And we rode the subway for a day game from our hotel. We stayed in a hotel right at Grand Central Station and we took the subway to the Bronx. And I was up all night and I mean, I'm just, I'm in bad shape. And so I get on the subway. And to that point, I think I was able to put on a pretty good mask when I had to. And there were times where I just would excuse myself from the table or from the broadcast booth and Go to the bathroom or somewhere and just, you know, cry and get it out and then compose myself and come back. But over time, I wasn't able to do that as well. So we're sitting on the subway and Fred's sitting across from me and he's, I could tell he's staring at me. And he says to me, Are you okay? And I said, Yeah, I'm fine. He's like, Are you sure? And there was something about the way he asked that I could tell he was genuinely interested in how I was doing, or he cared about how I was doing. And he came over and sat right next to me and said, "Uh, you want to talk about it? And I mean, you know, tears come running down my face, and I just explained to him what I'd been going through and the feelings I was dealing with at the time. And, And this was 2005, and I mean, he became a father figure, at that point, he would check in with me all the time. I would go to – he had an office at Kauffman Stadium because he wasn't just doing games then, but he had a role with the radio network. And I would stop by his office, and I would talk to him before I would go to work. I mean, there were a couple – I remember a couple day games where I left in the middle of the game and went to his office while Denny was doing his innings and composed myself and went back to the booth. So he really he really invested in me and wanted to make sure – that I was okay. And he checked in on me a lot. And when he died, his wife, Barbara, and his son, Joe asked if I would speak at his funeral. And I just thought, I mean, what the, the, the beauty in our, in our relationship that he accepted me when I ended up with his job. I never say I replaced Fred White. I always say I was sitting in his chair or I had his job because it was his job. Mm-hmm. And to think in the end that I was one of the people that was asked to speak at his funeral. I mean, it says more about him than it does about me.
1: All right, so The Shame of Me is the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Why is that the title of your book?
2: Uh, that was actually Jeffrey Flanagan's idea. Uh, my mom, as I, was, as I was going through what I was going through, and she was nursing me through it, my mom had gone through clinical depression two different times. Mm-hmm. So we really related to one another, and our, our relationship went deeper through that. But as, as I started to get better, she would say, I'd call her and say, I just had a conversation with my counselor and, and I'd say, oh man, I just had a major breakthrough, I think, tonight. And I think the reason why I behave this way is because of this. And, and she'd say, write it down. And I was never, I you know, it's, here I am, you're talking about a book that I authored, but I've never been a writer. I've never been someone who's journaled. That's just not my nature. And she would say, write it down. Write down what you feel. And her reasoning was, that at some point, this high that I'm experiencing is going to turn into a low. I mean, that's just the rocky road of depression. But if I'm writing down my own words, then if I have a backslide, I can go back and read my words. And reading books written by professionals, reading autobiographies written by others who had gone through depression was helpful. But her thinking was, if I'm reading my I, – I could look at it and say, no, I wrote this that I was feeling better. And it was great therapy for me. And so um I ended up and I ended, at some point I ended up typing it. And I ended up with 225 pages of journaling basically. And it was, wow. you know, I was single at the time. A lot of this happened to me in August. So I was a month and a half away, two months away from the off season. Now I'm all alone with nowhere to go every day. And that was my that was my therapy. And so um one of the things that I really began to realize in my journaling and, and, and in my counseling sessions, and I had a life coach, I mean, I had a platoon of people that were trying to help me, was just how much shame that I felt about what I was going through and how much shame men have going through this. Women are much better dealing at this than we are. I mean, you ask a guy, hey, how you been? Fine. You ask a woman, how are you doing? And, I mean, you better sit down and get comfortable because she's going to tell you. Sure. And we tease women about that, but they, they get it out. I mean, they, they they express what they're going through, and they're able to get through this better than men are. So I, I, as, I was, as I was writing, here's a long answer to your short question. I talked about the shame of man. And that was one of the things I really focused on is I realized, like, what is there to be ashamed of? And I realized the difference between being tough and being brave. And you know, tough guys just kind of, you know, shrug it off. And, and I started to realize like, what are the real tough things that we have in, in, you know, in everyday life? Well, like a helmet is really tough because there's something very delicate on the inside. An eggshell is tough and hard because there's something very delicate on the inside. So tough guys are protecting something. And we love to talk about tough guys. But if they're tough and they're, they're kind of uh, blocked off, there's something tender on the inside that they don't want revealed. And I decided I wanted to be brave instead of tough and reveal what was going on on the inside. And I realized I needed to let go of some shame. So, anyway, I talked a lot about the shame of man, Jeffrey Flanagan, who approached me and said, "Would you be willing to write a book about this and i said here 's two hundred and twenty five pages of journaling, and he just kept coming back to the shame of me so that was that was his idea but the the the, the basis of it was I was the chapter in the book talking about the shame of man
1: When did you realize something wasn 't right what what brought it on was it was it one moment? was it a gradual thing I, I want to know how you handled that because I think all of us have stuff inside of us that we want to mm-hmm. get out and I'll speak from experience myself. You, you, you feel less of a man if you mm-hmm. decide I'm going to open up and tell people how I'm doing. And sometimes you don't tell people. How. So, so what, what brought it on for you?
2: Well, there's, there's two levels of it. Number one, and I learned this later from my counselor, and she called it an incongruency, meaning if, if something tragic happened to you and you were depressed, there was a congruency. Your life circumstance was congruent with your depressed feelings. If there's an incongruency, which was me, I mean, I had accomplished basically everything I wanted to accomplish financially and in my career before I turned 30 years old, and yet I was miserable. There's an incongruency. So I began to realize when I took inventory, what, am, what is there to be depressed about? And yet I was. I mean, I couldn't snap out of it. And my friends would say, oh, but you're so blessed and you have so much to look forward to and it was like I was made of steel and it was just bouncing off of me. I just couldn't penetrate it. So there there was that part of it when I realized something was wrong. And then, and this goes back to what happened to me in New York, is I started to have physical symptoms. I'd wake up sweating in the middle of the night. My heart would be racing. And my mom used to talk a lot to me about the the, the medical side of being depressed that it's not just pumping yourself up and, and getting over it, but there's 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 something physically going on in my body which is not allowing me to have these breakthroughs. And so I remember in New York thinking to myself, maybe there is something physically wrong with me. So there was the emotional component where I was just overreacting about nothing. And then there's a the physical part of it, like why is my body reacting this way? And I started to lose weight. I lost my appetite and I couldn't sleep at night. And so that's actually, that's the, the incident in New York is what led me to go to the doctor, which led to medication, which, you know, at least that side of it, I began to it, have some breakthroughs.
1: It also seems like we've become more advanced as a country now where like mental illness is okay to talk about. It's mm-hmm. not as taboo as it was maybe back in 2005. You know? Well, it doesn't I mean, seem that long ago.
2: Well, I know this is, this is debated quite a bit. I can only speak of my own experience, but you know, there's, There, I think there's medical evidence that when someone is depressed, that there is a chemical imbalance. Now, if you were diagnosed as being diabetic, I can't tell you, well, Bob, you just need to think positive and then your pancreas will create insulin. You know, you can't will yourself to be diabetic to not being diabetic. It's a medical condition. And if you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed and they prescribe insulin or they prescribe a change in diet or whatever, no one's like, he's that Fesco guy, man. What's his problem with his diabetes? No, no, it's a medical condition, and it's accepted. I came to the realization that depression was the same thing. And by going to the doctor and taking medication was going to help, and it did help for a time. And um, so I think that's one of the major breakthroughs with depression and anxiety, that it's not, it's not a reflection of how strong somebody is. It's a medical condition. Are you cured? No, and I've, I'll never say that I'm cured. And I, I mean, I still have a lot of the same dark thoughts that I had back in 2005 and even prior to that, but now I realize what they are. You know, I mean, what I'm able to kind of sit back and say, okay, why am I angry? What am I angry about? Is this a truth or is this a lie? And I realize, okay, this isn't, this is, this is an incongruency. This is not going on right now. I have more resources You know, I'll talk to my wife. I'll talk to my close friends um, and people, you know, I have some very close friends that I can reach out to and they'll reach out to me. And so I can snap out of it pretty quickly. And so, and I also don't ever want to take for granted what I went through and and think that I'm cured and go back to a lifestyle and a way of thinking prior to my depression because I know I can slip back into it. And I, and if I did, I'd go back on the medication again and, and, and start from scratch so I don't ever want to think that I'm cured, but I I manage it.
1: I'm going to get personal here for yep. a minute with you. You have one of the best jobs in the world, make a nice salary, I imagine. Got a beautiful wife, got a beautiful family. What are the incongruencies? Like, what are you fighting? Because... Usually guys are worried about money, worried about their job, worried about whether they're going to have a family, worried about their kids, all that kind of stuff. And it seems like you have all of that. Like you're living the American dream. Mm-hmm. So, so what are those incongruencies for you that, that get you upset? Then you realize, okay, that's just fake and I move on.
2: Right. Well, there's an exercise that someone – um Shared with me that I still use with friends when they're going through a dark time, and it's called the it's it's the if then um, exercise. So, and I'm just turning I'm turning this back on myself. So let's just say I'm 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 talking to myself here, which I do a lot of, by the way. And I guess I pass it on to my son because he talks to himself too.
1: Great great person to have a conversation (laughs) with. Those yourself at least are listening the whole time, right?
2: (laughs) It's if you are responding to yourself. Well, then that's issues, yeah. So if then. Let's say you're going through a very dark moment where you're just anxious and angry, and you say to yourself, What's the problem? Well, I'm angry because um, I'm angry because somebody at work said something that really set me off. Okay, well, if your coworker said something that really set you off, then what? Then He doesn't respect me. Okay, if he doesn't respect you, then what? Well, if he doesn't respect me, then we can't work together. Okay, well, if you can't work together, then what? Well, if we can't work together, then maybe my boss will realize that maybe they don't need me. Well, if they don't need you, then what? Well, then they might fire you. If they fire you, then what? Then I don't know if I'm going to be able to get another job. If you can't get another job then what? Well, then my you know, I can't support my kids and my wife like I'm used to. Okay, if you can't support your kids and your wife, then what? Well, we might have to move and we might have to, I might have to start a new career. Well, if you have to start a new career, then what? You know, I'm I'm you know, I may I may be a failure. So what you're telling me is if you if you're not getting along with your coworker, then you're a failure. So you cut off all the fat in between and it begins to realize how the mind begins to race. You take a small issue and it turns into a big issue because you get into this if-then thing. And so that's what I do to myself is I, something small happens and I get caught in this if-then thing. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, when your wash machine is, uh, unbalanced and all of a sudden you hear boom, 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 boom in the other room, you know, it's just, it's, it's spinning out of control that can happen to me. Well, I have some lid lifters in my life now where all you have to do is lift up the lid. The thing slows down, you rearrange the clothes and you start it over again. And I, I didn't, I didn't have lid lifters back in 2005, whether they be people or scripture or whatever. And so the, if then would, would continue and go on and on. So are there incongruencies Maybe that wasn't the best choice of words, but along those lines, I allow my brain to take something that's little and make it something big. And that was, that's, I mean, that's was my biggest problem. And I think a lot of people's problems when they dwell on what's happening with their lives right now. That if this is going on right now, then it's going to last forever and I'm going to die. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Mm-hmm. Let's just deal with the here and now.
1: So what were you worried most about in 2005? What was the, like, what were you, the if then exercise? What was the yeah. end result?
2: Okay. So I, part of, I think part of my success at a young age is I was very goal oriented. I would set goals and, and I must have been blessed with a knack of, of, knowing how to achieve those goals and what what it took to achieve those goals. Well, all of my goals were professional. I wanted to be the youngest broadcaster in the major leagues. And in 1995, I was. I was 24 years old. Great. Check it off the list. Felt really good. But there was still something else missing. Okay. Well, by this age, I want to make a certain income. And I think I accomplished that by the time I was 27 years old. Check that off the list. Felt good. Nice accomplishment. But that joy faded away. Okay, well, then I would like to drive a certain type of car. So I accomplished that when I was about 28 years old. Check it off the list. I got to drive around, feel like I was some big deal because I was driving this car. Nobody really cared. And the people that did care weren't the type of people that I wanted to invest a lot of time with anyway. Okay, well, what's the next thing? I would like to live on a big house on a lake. And I accomplished that when I was 29 years old and it was fun and I'd have people over you included and we'd hang out in the lake and have a good time. And it was nice to host and then they would all go home and I'd be home all alone. And it was like, well, that was fun, but there's still this emptiness inside. And so all of these, I was accomplishing all of my goals and yet I wasn't feeling any better. And the one thing that was missing was I really wanted to be married and have kids. And I didn't make very good choices in the people I dated and the people I pursued because it was more about the whole package of how, you know, okay, major league broadcaster, nice car, nice house, this type of a wife that kind of goes along with this um, image I'm trying to portray and allowing other people to live vicariously through me. And so what I really needed to realize was like, what do I want? Do I really need to live in this house? Do I really need to drive this car? Do I really need to have this job? And the whole theme, really, if there's a, if there was a central theme of what was going on as I was recovering from depression was, is Ryan enough? Am I enough? If I had a more ordinary job in a more ordinary neighborhood, in an ordinary car with an ordinary salary – would people still want to associate themselves with me? Would I still be able to make friends? Would I still uh, get married and have kids? And so that's what I had to return to. So probably the depression was probably very much female related at the time because I've, I was ready to be married and it was one failed relationship after another. And it was, I think the fear of just being alone mm-hmm. and realizing that I was investing in all the wrong things and putting stock in all the wrong things. And all these checklists on the goals list, and yet I'm not more happy. I'm more depressed.
1: We started this off talking about the impact that Fred White had Mm -hmm. on you. And I think the biggest impact you had on Kansas City so far in your career, this is me speaking, but Mm -hmm. I think I speak for a lot of people is the eighth inning in Houston. And I think that's the greatest inning in Royals baseball history. Mm-hmm. And you start off that inning saying, if you dare to believe now's the time, and you attributed it back to Fred White. Mm-hmm. And then the eighth inning happens in Houston. And here I am getting goosebumps and getting emotional talking about yeah, that. Yeah,
2: even though you wanted to make yourself vomit when you when you heard me say it on the air because you're like, oh come on, LaFever.
1: No, I didn't. And I'll take <laughs> I'll take you exactly through that day. You know how you remember certain right. to a T. And it was a day game, and I had to go mm-hmm. pick up the kids at school. And I remember getting in the car, and I'm sitting at the stoplight at uh, Warnell or not in Warnell, I'm sorry, on Quivira, uh, crossing over four thirty-five. And I hear you say that, and I'm starting, I'm, I'm already pissed because I think that they're going to lose, right? right? And, oh my god, I'm not right. ready for this season to end. This is not the way it's supposed to end. Mm-hmm. And you make that comment, and you know, I get emotional when I talk about those fourteen and fifteen teams. I really mm-hmm. do. Like it, it, it makes me emotional to talk about them. And I go over the bridge and I get into the parking lot of school and the inning kind of starts, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. And everybody and their brother in the parking lot has the radio on. And you hear about, like, the old people talk about they could go from store to store and everybody – you didn't miss a pitch because you could walk down the street and everybody – that's the way it was that day at school. Mm -hmm. And everybody had the radio on and everybody was listening and everybody was in sync with what was going on. The kids get out. We quick get back in the car and – You drive in, and the Royals tied the game when I was going back across 435 on Quivira in that eighth inning. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, holy crap, Ryan Lefevre just painted what I think is the greatest inning of baseball I've ever heard on the radio. Mm. Maybe the most important inning of Royals baseball ever. And it all comes back to that relationship that you had with Fred White. Mm -hmm. And if you never formed that relationship with Fred White, you never would have set that inning up, and it would never have had the same impact on me and I'm sure millions of others Royals fans that it did that day, hearing you talk about Fred White, and then boom, magic happens.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for the compliment. I I appreciate that. I mean, you're saying all that, and honestly, I feel like you're talking about somebody else. Another thing, too, Denny Matthews had committed to a 50-year Reunion yeah. back in Illinois. He should have been calling that inning. Mm-hmm. So I'm only doing the eighth inning because Denny's not there. And we played the Indians either at the very end of the 15 season or, you know, toward the end of the 15 season. And Tom Hamilton, the longtime voice of the Indians, who's a, a mentor of mine, great friend, he said something to me I, I never will forget and was fresh in my mind that day he said going cuz the royals had won the division by i don't know 10 games or whatever he said good luck in the playoffs and he said keep in mind no matter what happens in the playoffs this team gave kansas city 6 6 months of great baseball and i thought to myself that's a good point because the year before in 14 you know the royals what we clinched the playoffs in What, game 160? Mm -hmm. was that last series in Chicago. It was a Friday night. Yeah, I mean, so they barely got in, right? And because of a bounce here and there and the wild card game and all that stuff, here we are and suddenly in game seven of the World Series. I think we all recognize, like, you know, anything can happen in the postseason. And so I thought that was a really good point. So the inning begins, and I'm thinking to myself, This game is over and we're going to lose. And this is not what we signed up for to lose in the first round of the Astros after making it to game seven the year before. And I'm glad you
1: can be honest with yourself and say that, you know,
2: and I'm thinking at some point in this conversation, I have to echo what Tom Hamilton told me because I know fans are going to be upset, but let's all remind ourselves this didn't finish the way we wanted to. But man, what a ride we had this summer. So that that's on the back burner. I'm going to use that at some point in this inning. And um, you know, maybe maybe it was a a a message from Fred, a message from the heavens. It was because it's not like I was sitting on this, you know, for days or hours or minutes. It just it just came to me. Um, and I don't remember how the inning started, but it just occurred to me they were down by four going into the eighth inning, Mm -hmm. and that's what happened in the wild card game. And Fred used to say all the time. You know, if you if you want to dream a little bit, and then he would lay out the scenario where the dream would come true. And so I don't think I've ever heard it before, but I mean, I remember what I said because it's been repeated to me. But I said, Royals are down by four and going to the eighth inning. And as our late friend Fred White once said, if you want to dream a little bit, and I think I just kind of reminded everybody that that's what happened in the wild card game. And I pictured people driving around Kansas City going, oh me a break you know what I mean because it was it was so unlikely well then they start rallying and and they end up you know taking the lead in that inning and you know people are texting me how did you know and I didn't I mean I just thought I mean it just it literally came to me but I was you know not only was it an important inning for the Royals but it was the dream inning for a radio broadcaster because as you described I knew what it was in the afternoon. It was at the time when people were picking kids up from school, and I thought to myself, I'll probably never have a bigger radio audience than right now. Because people just were not in front of their televisions that time of day. Right. They're in the car. And so, um, you know, the reaction obviously was incredible, be- not because of anything I did, it was because, you know, the team came back and took the lead. But yeah, I mean that's I don't know. If if I have a better inning than that, it's gonna have to be Pretty doggone incredible
1: and you got to call the Last out of the World Series and the wild card and and I'm going back to that inning because it was just so memorable and we've played all these highlights from mm-hmm. Rusty Coons. you go back to the Rusty Coons story yeah. and he it was it was January sixteen or whatever you know right after the World Series he came in studio. And he'd never heard any of these calls before. And we're playing all these calls. And I've never seen a grown man just crying mm. like Rusty was crying. And he had to back away from my – he goes, I, I, I can't do it because i never heard these before. I didn't realize how great this was, you right. know, being part of those moments. And, and you really don't when you're kind of wrapped up in it because you're wrapped up in, in the moment. But for those two years, you were pretty much on the call for every big moment that happened. Mm-hmm. And, again, I go back to everything happens for a reason. Eventually, you will be the voice of the Royals. And to have all of those big moments captured by you at that stage to carry over for the next 20 years, Mm -hmm. I think is very important. The wild card game, the World Series clincher, the inning in Houston. like Every big moment for those two years, you're the soundtrack to those moments. Mm -hmm. And and I think as I'm listening to all of this happen over the two years, I'm thinking to myself, it's happening for a reason. It's happening for a reason. Ryan is supposed to be... On the calls of mm-hmm. all of these big moments, did you ever think of it that way? That like the the main moments, there you are.
2: No, I really didn't. Um, you know, talking about Fred, Fred, same thing happened. Same to Fred, thing happened with you know, Fred. And Fred, yeah. well, you know, technically was number two to Denny. I mean, yeah. it's just the way it worked out. Um, people ask me what was your most memorable moment, mm-hmm. and it was the wild card game that I'll never forget. But it wasn't Salvi's hit. It wasn't the call that I made which i didn't hear by the way it was so loud i was just screaming into the microphone i didn't know what i was saying you know but when the game was over
1: down the left field line, it's fair. Cologne scores. The yeah. Well,
2: I, people ask, why did you say fair ball twice? And it was because I, when I said fair ball the first time, I couldn't hear what I was saying. So I was, my first thought was, well, if I can't hear what I'm saying, maybe people listening can't hear what I'm saying. So I just, you know, it fair ball, good. fair it's, ball. Yeah, I mean, that's the second, yeah. that's the reason why I said it. I mean, I just, I literally could you not hear myself. Pickers out there, yeah, just part
1: of the call. Fair ball, fair ball. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, but I had to leave and go out. Because I, out to right field, because I had television responsibilities for post game. So I leave and I walk through the concourse. I had to walk through the fans to get there. And the fans were going bananas. Uncontrollable joy. I mean, people were just beside themselves. It was over. The playoff postseason drought was over. We were no longer the laughing stock not just a baseball but professional sports Mm -hmm. and the relief nobody recognized me and i'm just taking this all in and getting back to the the calls when i was young and everyone's mapping out my career for me oh you're gonna do this and then you're gonna be a network announcer and you're gonna be the next whatever and i i I mean okay it sounds good to me (laughs) um but then i end up with a string of all these lousy teams so i realized like to be the iconic broadcaster, you have to have an iconic call. Well, I wasn't, what iconic calls am I going to have? You know, with the teams <laughs> yeah. that I had. And so the Royals
1: f- avoid hundred losses. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's
2: probably the best that I had. Right. So here they win this game and I get to call it. And so up to that point, it was all about me and my career in an innocent way. I wasn't, you know, in an unselfish way, but I was thinking about me. And then I saw how the crowd react. The people were leaving their seats and heading to the, to the parking lot and complete strangers are hugging each other and high fives and I mean people were just so full of joy and it hit me. This has nothing to do with me at all. This is so much bigger than me. And, and in a good way. I was very humbled by that experience when I realized this is about the fan, this is about Kansas City, this is about the region. You know, and this I I it was incredible. So finally I get to the to the stage for for the T V pregame and this lady runs up to me and gives me this big hug and says, you know, Thank you. And I realized, like, I didn't do anything right here. I just happened to be the guy in front of the microphone. So you talk about fate. Well, then, like you said, all these things happen, and I just happened to be at the microphone. On November, I haven't shared this publicly, November 1st of 2005, as I'm making my way through my depression, I had to make a very important life decision in regards to a relationship. A lot of prayer was involved, and, but I realized if I'm going to move forward here, I need to make a difficult choice with a relationship, and I need, to, I need to commit myself differently. I was single, no kids, just barely survived getting through 2005. Ten years to the day, I'm married, four kids, and I'm saying the Royals are World Series champions. So call it what you want, but I think you know fate, um, God, however someone wants to view it. I mean, there was there was a there was a divine appointment that was given to me. I didn't earn it, but I put my trust in different things and my faith in different things, and then there I was, ten years to the day, the Royals are World Series champions.
1: Is that the day you started dating your wife?
2: <laughs> no, actually, it was the day I started dating nobody for a while to yeah. just. Um, to just start a new direction in my life, so.
1: And ten years later, you're saying the the world champion Kansas City. Ten Royals. years to the day. Why didn't Denny call that?
2: Well, it's. I mean, people are probably tired of hearing the story. But when we won Game Four, I don't
1: think there's one
2: story from 2014 or
1: 2015 <laughs> that you can tell that people are tired of hearing yeah. about.
2: Well, um, so when the Royals won Game Four, we're on the road in New York, and. Different from being at home when there can be a walk-off like the wild card, you never know when the game's going to end. The Royals, as we remember, had this knack of winning late in games and into extra innings. So they win game four. Here's game five, the last game in New York, then we go back to Kansas City. And I stayed up all night agonizing. Because when we get into extra innings, I do the 10th, Denny does the 11th, I do the 12th, he did it all the way Okay. And I thought, what if... The Royals take the lead in extra innings and I'm calling that inning. What do I do? I'm not just gonna assume, well, this is my inning, I'm gonna call the final I mean, I just you know, I have I have great respect for Denny. Denny has been so good to me and we're great friends. I love Denny Matthews. And I respect what he has done and the years that he has in front of me and what the fans think of him compared to me. I mean, I, I'm I'm aware of all that. So I went to Mike Swanson my boss, and I talked to, I don't remember who else I talked to, I said, what do I do? And the conclusion we uh, arrived at was, if in fact that happens, that I should ask Denny what he thinks. And I promised myself that if I asked Denny, and he showed any hesitation, or either verbally or non-verbally told me that he wanted to call that inning, he was going to call that inning. And I was going to get up, and walk away from the microphone and force him to do that inning and not tell anybody. Maybe my wife, but I would never tell anybody. I would say, we go to the bottom of the 10th or the 12th or the 14th, and here's Denny Matthews. And that's I made peace with that. So the Royals score five runs in the 12th inning. And Wade Davis hasn't even come in yet, so Mm -hmm. this game's over. The floor of the radio booth at City Field was, was vinyl tile, and we had chairs with wheels on them. So the inning's over. I look over at Denny, and he's just kind of totaling up his scorecard as if we were doing a game on June 15th at Kauffman Stadium. I mean, it was just, it was just Denny being Denny. So I rolled my chair on the vinyl tile, got up right next to him, and then I said, hey, Denny, and he looked over and I said, how do you feel about me doing the last inning here? And without hesitation, he just looked at me and he said, well, of course it's your inning. And I tell people, and it sounds corny, but I mean it. That moment was more important to me than being able to call the final out of the world series that he didn't, I mean, he didn't hesitate at all. And he, he, he gave that to me. That was a gift that he gave to me. And his reasoning was, well, he got to call a final out of the world series. And so he's done that. And now I get an opportunity to do it. So, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm, that's the reason why I got to call the final out. The awkward part about the call, I listened to the call. It's okay. I think it served its purpose. But every other big moment I had, final out, explosion of the crowd. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like the wild, the end of the, end of the wild card game. Yeah. So I tried not to script what I was going to say. I thought to myself, don't say anything clever. Just.
1: Don't mance s- this thing up. Just right?
2: sum it up so that they can use it on the highlight video. Just. I, this is a gift to the Royals. Hopefully, this is a gift to the Royals. This isn't like, oh boy, Ryan made a great, clever. Don't, nope, don't do that. The greatest calls, I think, are just, just spell it out. So, I mean, the inning just went on forever, you know, and, and Wilmer Flores fouled off like 20 pitches. Like, it's just like this, you know, get this thing over with. And the pitch is thrown, and I say, strike three called, and City Field becomes a library. It's silent, and it's it startled me. And I've and um, strike three called. It's over. I say, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's the it's over part, or they've done it when I say they've done it. But I wasn't quite like it, it wasn't quite sure because it went silent, and I looked on the field and I saw them throwing their gloves, and then I kind of regained my composure and went back and finished the call. Well, we get back to Fred White again. One of Fred's iconic calls was. Ground ball off the glove of the pitcher. Base hit. It's over. The Royals have done it. And so here we said the exact same thing, you know, when the Royals had done something huge. And I hope, you know, unconsciously that was a tribute to Fred that there's we both said the same thing in a big moment. I didn't plan it out that way. Um, Joe Buck, as he always does, had a great call. It was short and to the point. And I see him once or twice a year, and I've I got to remember to ask him this because he's done, you know, 20 World Series or whatever. And I've always wondered... Is his call different when the visiting team wins versus the home team wins? Because he says like, inside corner, the Royals are World Series, cha- 2015 World Series champions. He didn't leave any gaps for the crowd. Like he didn't know the, cr- he knew the crowd wasn't going to be there because was on the road. And it's, it's a great call. Um, mine, I had these gaps in there that, I mean, I could have been out in the parking lot calling this <laughs> thing because it was so quiet. You it know? was. There was one Royals fan I'll never forget that was right below our radio booth and he turned to me and kind of pumped his fist. Like he and I were the only ones that were celebrating. But, um, yeah, that was, that was, I mean, there's so many great broadcasters who have never been to a World Series, let alone get to call the final out. So that was that was a huge career blessing.
1: All right, as we get ready to wrap up here, I w- I don't want to know your best moment or anything like. What's your favorite booth moment? Your favorite moment calling Royals baseball?
2: Um, probably the last out of the World Series, not and and the the interaction with Denny and me. I think. Um. I could have I I could have kept that between us, but it just meant so much, and I want people to know how Denny handled that. But I think that's probably the best booth moment because it was just the two of us, and everything was going on around us. Everyone was getting so excited as the final out, and yet we had this quiet moment together, and just you know just the way he reacted and the way you know he allowed me to have that that last call. I think is my my favorite booth moment.
1: In twenty years, will you be taking road games off?
2: <laughs> if I'm still here in twenty years, I—I um, I mean, I don't know.
1: What I'm getting at is, are you going to be here in twenty years and and, and be the guy? Is—is is that where we're going to be? I don't.
2: I mean, I—I I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. And you know, when I'm twenty, you know, twenty years from now, I'll be sixty-eight years old. You know, I don't—I don't know if I'm. We'll still be doing the job at a level where they're going to want me here. Um, who knows what's going on with my family at the time, 20 years from now. Um, but I have learned that...
1: Probably have another kid on the way,
2: right? <laughs> yeah. No, we're holding <laughs> steady at four. I have learned, though, Bob, that um, the longer I do this... The, the more that I realize that this is all about the players on the field and the fans that cover. And I just, I'm the middleman who happens to be going along for the ride. And I'm not the guy. And I've learned in my life that anytime I worry about being the guy, it doesn't work out very good for me. So, um, if I'm still doing games 20 years from now, well, then I will have been here for 41 years. And that's a, that's a long time. So I think just relating to so many different generations there are certain labels that are given to you I just hope I'm the guy at home 20 years from now and my wife and my kids still love me 20 years from now maybe I have grandkids at that point Um, that'll, that'll be more important to me than anything I could do in the booth
1: As you can see from that conversation with Ryan Lefevre, everybody has something going on that you may not know about. Stop, take the opportunity to ask them how they're doing, and genuinely care about people as much as Ryan does. Because without Ryan, some of the great moments that we talked about may never sound the same.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on What's in Your Podcast queue. And guess what?